March 23rd, 1775, St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. The Virginia House of Burgesses meets to consider the wisdom of supplying troops to the colonial army against the encroaching English troops. Patrick Henry rises to deliver a rousing speech in favor of war, which reportedly ended with this declaration, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The house, it is said, leapt to its feet shouting, To arms! To arms! So in the estimation of the Virginians, a scrap with England was a fight worth having. There was a Virginian seated in that audience by the name of George Washington, and he agreed with that assessment. In a matter of just months, he would be leading the colonial army. About a month after that, Patrick Henry himself was serving as a colonel of the 1st Virginia Regiment. We ask the question, as historians continue to do, and as particularly Christian historians continue to do, was this the right fight? Was this quarrel executed in the right way? Well, all we can say on this 234th anniversary of our nation's independence is that Providence approved it. And we are the privileged beneficiaries. In a broader sense, we are reminded just in this picture as we broaden it that one of the key skills of life is to pick the right fights and to fight them in the right way. Indeed, picking the right quarrel and quarreling in the right way is a vital ministry skill that Jesus expects us to develop as a church. First of all, the spiritual leaders of our church have a responsibility to initiate the right kind of quarrels and to handle those in a God-honoring manner. And secondly, we must all work to appreciate the calling of our leaders to this task to support them in it, and to labor together ourselves in this direction as a discerning community that is faithful to the rule of our Savior over us. In a fallen world, there will be scraps. There will be fights. There must be. And that is true for this church. As we continue to listen in on the Apostle Paul's instructions to Timothy as he leads the church, undoubtedly there at Ephesus, the theme of picking up the right quarrel and engaging in the right way comes to the surface in the latter half of chapter 2. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we work our way through this book, we've come to the 14th verse. Now let's remember that a major theme from chapter 1 verse 1 to 2 and verse 13 is found in 1.8. Where Paul says to Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. And that really has taken up the focus here. To not be ashamed of the truth. To be willing rather than being ashamed to suffer for the cause of Christ. So here the address is on the attack that comes from outside from those who persecute the church. Now at chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul shifts the emphasis on how Timothy should respond to attacks on the true doctrine from those who purportedly are inside the faith. 
This is a battle we must learn to handle with skill and with faithfulness. And so, if we could summarize verses 14-21, through we might say, Paul is saying this, pick the right fight. Pick the right fight. Verse 14, he says, remind them of these things. Who's them and what are these things? Remind them probably goes back to chapter 2 and verse 2. Where he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So as you are developing leaders there in the church, remind them of the things that I've talked about. What things has he talked about? Well, let me say also, it's probably a bit of a broader reference as well, the them. And that would refer in chapter 2 and verse 10 to God's called people. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So these leaders that are being developed within the church, all of God's people who are called to salvation in Christ, remind them of these things. What are these things? takes us back to chapter 2 and verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my Gospel. Chapter 2, verse 10, the second half of the verse. The salvation that is obtained in Christ Jesus. And then he's probably referring specifically to verses 11 through 13. If we have died with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Remind them, remind the church of these things. What is that saying? Keep preaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ to God's people. Keep calling God's people to endure hardship, to persevere in the faith, to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. This will always be an emphasis in the faithful church because it is always a battle line in the lives of God's people. So remind them of these things and, verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. It will be helpful for us to go back to his first letter to Timothy. If you'll turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, what quarrels is he talking about? In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3, he reminds Timothy of his charge that certain persons are not to teach different doctrine, false doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is the aim of genuine faith? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They don't know what on earth they're talking about. But they sure talk about it a lot. Avoid these people. He says, avoid these discussions. Chapter 4, verse 6 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. We see the emphasis here, again, is not excite the people. 
Make church as a happy of a situation as you can, as exciting as possible. Tell them what they want to hear. No, it's teach the truth. Be faithful to the good doctrine. And, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Set aside these silly myths that are spreading. And people are getting all involved with this because it's the latest teaching. Chapter 6 of this same book, 1 Timothy 6. Notice verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. There it is again. Which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So as we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have more of a background and a sense of these kinds of dissensions and quarrels. There's people that want to fight about ideas. These teachers are influenced by the philosophies of the day and they're trying to twist true doctrine into something that is agreeable to them. Now, let's stop here and be careful. It's clear Paul is not saying we should never confront false teachers. By quarrel about words, he does not mean we should avoid, for instance, debate about doctrinal concepts such as the word justification. The word justification and its meaning is a major issue in theological debate today. There's much false teaching on it. All I have to say is think about the book of Romans. Paul is not saying avoid discussion about the word justification or something like that. Paul is saying that there's a wrong kind of fight that can be taken up in the wrong way. Timothy, as you give leadership to the church there, don't get sucked into quarrels that lead to petty debates and word wars that accomplish no good and drag the hearers into spiritual ruin. That's not the end of the command. And there's support for that interpretation down in verse 23 where he says, "...have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels." All that comes of it is dissension among people because there's nothing there really to discuss. Nothing fruitful. Now we find ourselves gathered on a very different day. Very different circumstances. In our day, what Paul might be saying to us are Christians who spend their energies looking to debate politics. The Christian life is turned into a political focus. Or those who are into nutrition or child education or some Bible version or esoteric theological schemes and the like. And the net result of all of these discussions is nothing that is virtuous. We can identify this struggle. It's not directly the same as what Paul is addressing here to Timothy. But it's the struggle when God's people get all taken up in small debates and issues that really don't take them anywhere further in their walk with God. They're not developing as godly people. They're developing as masters of a topic. When we see that, there should be alarms that go off in our mind. The true faith is never like that. It's a faith that gets down on the earth and it walks among people and it lives like Jesus lived. 
Now, there's no problem to have opinions on any of these matters. But Christians who become crusaders for petty debates about peripheral things are like a cannonball tossed to a swimmer. Let it sink. Let it go. Avoid it. Don't go there. Don't quarrel about these things because it just ruins the hearers. It doesn't bring them to the truth. But here is what you should do, Timothy. Rather than getting into these petty debates, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Weighing carefully the Greek words, Paul is saying this with persistent zeal. Eagerly labor to accurately and forthrightly interpret the Word of God. That is where a pastor's time is to be spent in part and in great part. With persistent zeal to eagerly labor to accurately and forthrightly interpret the Word of God. Now this must inform our standard as a church and we're striving to honor this principle of Scripture. Church is not ours to do with it as we choose, but as we are given instruction here, particularly those who labor as pastor teachers in the church, those who labor as teachers, those who know the Word of God, which includes all of us. But as we think through this, particularly pastors are to be men of the book. Week in and week out, they are to pour over the Scriptures such that over time, God Himself approves of their skill in and loyalty to the faithful interpretation of Scripture. Such a leader cannot be swayed by cultural expectations or popular opinions. He must know how to detect and to avoid false doctrine. While he's obviously going to be hindered by his personality, by weaknesses that he has, he's going to be influenced by life experiences, sometimes negatively, All of that aside, he does not read the Scriptures through the grid of personal opinion and personal history. At every turn, he must be a man who submits to the meaning of the text as, one has put it, a trustworthy purveyor of sound doctrine. No one will always agree with everything that he teaches. But everyone should know that he has worked hard to earn the privilege. He has worked hard to earn the privilege to declare to the church of Jesus Christ, this is what God says. This is what God's Word means. Hear the Word of the Lord. And he is to live the kind of life that backs up what he preaches lest he play the talking head hypocrite and thus disparage the integrity of God's revelation. Timothy, pour over the Word of God. Know it. Proclaim it. Master it. Be approved before God as one who handles His Word accurately. So while Timothy is to labor in the interpretation of the Bible, he is on the other hand, verse 16, you see the word but in verse 16, but avoid 
irreverent babble. That is empty, useless debates of these false teachers. Avoid it. He was to reject the false doctrine, certainly. Not to saturate his mind in the arguments of this false doctrine. But more than that, why should Timothy avoid such debate in the church? Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Pretty graphic warning, isn't it? Such debates steer people away from the truth, so avoid them altogether. As its decaying influence spreads, false teaching eats away at the spiritual vitality and the moral fiber of the church. This is why it is so vital that what is proclaimed in the Word of God in the context of a local church is demonstrably biblical. It's tied to the text of God's Word. It is based on true doctrine. Because if there's false teaching going on in the church, it will eat away like a cancer at the moral life of that church. So avoid such debates. They will only tear people down. The only progress that they make is progress in ungodliness. Well, Paul, what are you talking about specifically? I mean, let's get a little more specific. Alright, he does. Verse 17, at the end of the verse, among them, among these kinds of teachers are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now we notice that Paul names these false teachers. They are known to Timothy, presumably to the Ephesian believers. We don't know the relationship of these men to Timothy, to one another for that matter, or to the church. All we can know is that their foolish conclusions were disrupting the faith of Christians. Stay clear of it. Now, we'll see as the text develops, he's not saying don't address false doctrine. But he's saying don't get caught into their discussion. These individuals have denied the resurrection of Christ. Now, the physical resurrection of Jesus has been a major point of assault on true doctrine through the centuries. And on some level, as Christians, we say, good. That's where the assault should be. Because we hinge our faith. We depend upon the resurrection of Christ for everything. We have no faith without it. So in one sense, it's good and welcome that that's where the debate is. In fact, many who study to disprove the physical resurrection of Christ come to faith in it. And so on some level, it's one of the greatest evangelistic messages. There's two likely sources in this context for this conclusion. First of all, what is very clear is there was a strong cultural bent toward the philosophical belief that the material world is evil. The early critics of Christianity were appalled at the doctrine of physical resurrection. They not only ridiculed it, they believed that it was destroying the empire that it would destroy the philosophical base of the Roman Empire, this concept that physical bodies would be revived. It's against everything we think. We might rough parallel, but say something like Christians who teach that self-esteem is really not an important thing. Well, that just sounds absolutely heretical in our culture. It goes much deeper here. It drove at the very heart and the core of what the pagan world thought. Or we might say it more broadly, that people are natural-born sinners. That doesn't fly in our culture. It's a completely countercultural, and it's offensive to people when we talk that way. It's also essential 
to genuine salvation. And so it is with the resurrection of Christ. There was certainly this cultural bent. It's also, though, very possible then that in that culture, a broader cultural setting, that some misread Paul's teaching that we have died with Christ and we have risen with Christ. There's the key, perhaps. We can get away from this offensive idea that Jesus' physical resurrection means that we will rise from the dead, and we can say that there was just a spiritual resurrection. We have all risen with Christ, and we have. But the Gospel of Christ relies upon, rests on the foundation of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. As Paul made clear to the Corinthians who were dealing with perhaps a slightly different doctrinal error, he said, without the resurrection of the dead, we have no faith. Jesus rose from the dead as the firstborn. All who live in Him will live forever in His presence because of His resurrection. We've entered into it in that way. Well, these individuals, for whatever reason, are saying Jesus, the resurrection has already taken place. We are risen with Christ. But if we are now risen with Christ as we are dying physically, it calls into question whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. And there were Christian teachers. People who said they were following Jesus Christ. People who said they were teaching the Bible. And they were saying, the resurrection is past. Hymenaeus and Philetus to name two. And it was troubling many. And undoubtedly it was troubling Timothy. And probably to encourage Timothy that the faith would not fall apart. Paul says in verse 19, it's a difficult verse, a lot to it, but let's hone in and think carefully here what he says. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God's firm foundation stands. Based on what follows, the phrase probably refers to the true doctrine and the genuine believers who are saved by trusting that revelation. So generally, he's referring here to God's saving plan as epitomized in the church of Jesus Christ. That firm foundation stands. The Gospel is unhindered. God's saving purposes will never crumble ultimately under false doctrine. In fact, there's a seal on this foundation. In the ancient world, they would stamp into the foundation stone of a building. This stamp, this some message or slogan to indicate the purpose of the building, the ownership of the building. And so God has stamped His approval and His ownership upon this firm foundation of the truth and His people. Such that two things are true. The end of verse 19. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now if we were very, very saturated in the Old Testament Scriptures, which we probably are not, but if we were saturated in those Scriptures as the Hebrews were, as Paul was, those phrases would immediately jump to our minds, bringing us back to number 16. Now what happened in number 16? In number 16, Korah, among the Israelites, stood up and said, hey, who says only Moses can be the leader? And Korah said, I think, I think all of God's people should have this authority. And he stood forward to oppose the authority that God had established. And what does God say? 
identify with Korah or identify with Moses. And I will render judgment. And we know in that account that Korah and all who stood with him were destroyed. It is very likely that that's the background from which Paul pulls these ideas. Though they may not be found there directly as quotations. The Lord knows who are His. What is the point? God has His chosen people. Don't be discouraged, Timothy. God has chosen people and He will not lose one of them. But, on that basis, secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. See the picture of Korah. Get away from Korah. God will judge. Stand with the truth. Leave Korah there, but here in this context, stand clear of these false teachers. What they are teaching is dragging people down into moral ruin. Their lives are not becoming more like Christ. They're becoming more taken up with these arguments. And their moral lives are falling apart. Get away from those people. There will be a day of accounting, and be sure of this, God's truth will stand. He knows who His people are. So separate yourself from those who are not His people because they are teaching false doctrine that leads away from the truth. Now Paul will offer an analogy to illustrate how Timothy and the church should respond to this reality. If we made it a separate point, it's first pick the right fight, and now he's saying be the right man in the fight. Verse 20, Now in a great house, here's the analogy, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. What's the house here? I think it's probably important that we not put too much thought into it. Is this the church? Is it the world in general? There's all kinds of different opinions, and I think it might indicate that we really don't know because Paul isn't necessarily wanting us to think this is what the house is. What he's simply saying is there's this large house, and in it there's vessels that serve noble purposes and vessels that serve ignoble purposes. What do you want to be? Cleanse yourself from sin and falsehood so that you serve Christ faithfully and become a servant that is usable in God's hands. There are false teachers who are destined for destruction, I think is the idea of these vessels of dishonor, connecting with Romans 9 and not overly connecting it there. But there are false teachers who are destined for destruction. Be sure to separate yourself from them. Don't walk with them. They're headed down the wrong path. So contrary to our culture's insistence, we do not have the fundamental right to our own opinion. Not as it pertains to God's revealed will. There are those that are sharing their own opinion. Don't be like them. Purify yourself to pursue a godly life in line with true doctrine. Pick the right fight. Be the right man in the fight. And thirdly, fight the right way. That's verses 22 through 26. I think this theme will rise out. It'll take a little bit to tease it out. So then, he says, you're to purify yourself to be a godly leader. So then, flee youthful passions. Verse 22. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Youthful passions. It may include sensual temptations, but contextually it's probably the desire to be right and the quickness to be offended. To lash out at those who hold wrong ideas. Set such youthful passions aside. As we age, we can become more opinionated, but as God graciously ages people, generally we're a little more open to different opinions. But sometimes in youthful passion, we want to be right and we want others to see that we're right. And he says, Timothy, be cautious of this. Rather than that, pursue righteousness. That is right conduct in line with God's will. Be feeding on the Word of God and be living what you're reading. Faith. That is, be faithful to God or perhaps trusting in God, but certainly both would be the case. Love. Pursue love for God and for others. How are you loving other people? How are you loving God? What are the evidences in your life? Pursue that. Pursue peace. There's that tranquility of heart and a sense of harmony and fellowship with God's people. It's the opposite of that agitated spirit that is always allowing conflicts to overwhelm and to become the whole thing. Along with all those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart, I think simply means as would be the case with all of God's people. Not just those who are in leadership as you are and those that you're training for leadership. All of us should be pursuing these virtues and not give in to youthful passions that lead us down into meaningless debates and fights. Now notice verse 23 then. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. There it is again. The theme that keeps riding through here. Don't get involved in the wrong fight. As he moves from there, verse 24, the emphasis will fall on the fighting in the right way. Verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The servant of the Lord serves as an almost technical term for the leadership of the church, for the spiritual shepherds in the assembly. Here then, the focus is particularly upon them. And so it applies to all of us a bit differently, but of course, whatever the calling is upon the leaders of the church, save one element here, it applies to all of us. What we should know, the standard to which we should hold the spiritual leadership of our church, and what those of us who are spiritual leaders must take very much to heart is how to fight, how to quarrel. The the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. A man who shepherds the church is not to be an argumentative or combative man. Now, there's different personalities. And some are far stronger. Some are far sharper with their words. There's a range. But in that range, this is one who is not typified as quarrelsome, as looking for a fight. Rather, this is one who's kind. I I don't know that the English translation is probably as accurate as we might like. The idea is gentle-mannered or not a bully. 
It says then secondly, positively, he's to be able to teach. And here's where it's clearly a reference to leadership within the assembly. The capacity to teach, the ability to teach, is not necessary for every believer in Christ on a formal level. On an informal, it is. But he must be able to teach. That is, he must be able to counter false teachers. And he must be able to convince believers of the truth patiently enduring evil. What does that mean? He's going to get hit. When he gets hit, does he draw a sword? Does he put up his fists? When a spiritual shepherd puts his finger on sin in a professing believer's life, many times fireworks result. And there can be harsh things that are said. There can be responses that are not godly. And on the other hand, if, if, if one is teaching the Word of God and preaching faithfully with any consistency, he's going to receive opposition. Through the years, I've had the opportunity in sanctification to be told that I teach false doctrine. Some of those charges aren't all that far away. But the temptation, I can tell you, in those moments is the temptation is strong to lash out, particularly when it's someone you think doesn't understand you or someone who doesn't have a clue what they're talking about. They're absolutely ignorant of the doctrine they're debating and telling you that you're wrong. It is very easy to lash out, to cut with unkind words, or to clam up and dismiss such a person with cold disapproval and just to turn your back. Such responses are not befitting the servant of Christ. There will be controversy. It's part of our calling. It's part of a fallen world. But the shepherd is rather than lashing out, is rather, verse 25, to correct his opponents with gentleness. So there is a correction. The pastor, the spiritual shepherd, the leader, the teacher, who just wants everybody to approve, will skirt the truth all the time. It's a battle to be faithful to what is. To be faithful to the truth of God. But the one who desires to be a faithful representative to Christ will have to correct. There are people who think the wrong thing. And God's Word makes it very clear. There are people who are doing the wrong thing and God's Word makes it very clear. And this one who wields the Word of God and studies it and knows it and is striving to live it must come alongside and correct. But how is that correction to take place? With gentleness. The Greek word speaks of one who endures offense and is free of revenge or roughness or explosive anger. Shepherds of the church take note. Those who would desire to lead the church of Christ, you have got to be capable of being offended and not lashing out. We have to love people more than that. And it will mean that we must walk in the Spirit at all times. And as a church, we need to hold our leadership responsible for such responses. Will leaders respond with 
rough, explosive anger, not enduring offense, it will happen. It should be confronted and reconciliation should be sought. But it is the standard. Should correct his opponents with gentleness. Now why is that? Because God, verse 25, may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by the devil to do the devil's will. Is how I translate the hymns. The goal of correction is to bring the sinner or false teacher to repentance. And we notice here, who is sovereign? Not the one confronting and not the one in sin. Who is sovereign is God. Notice here that it's God even who grants repentance. As we confront someone with sin, we must never forget this. Only God can bring this heart around. And you know that. As you are confronted with sin, as I am confronted with sin, as God brings that conviction to us, we won't change unless God acts upon our heart. So gently bring this correction, trusting the sovereignty of God to grant the gift of repentance to those who are caught in false doctrine. May we all remember that only God changes hearts and that vicious, impatient, unloving speech is useless to do anything but alienate. Jesus spoke hard words of rebuke. But let's not miss the point of this passage. Read Matthew chapter 23. Jesus knew how to line somebody up against the wall and nail them to it pretty carefully with His words. But He spoke them with a trust in the sovereignty of God and a gentle tongue He did not seek to intimidate people to repentance. People who are caught in the grasp of Satan need to be rebuked. They do not need to be bludgeoned. So while he must be resolute in purpose, the pastor must be gentle in manner. For he may be dealing with one of God's sheep. Now, this isn't a sermon that you just topically decide to preach on. It puts you as a leader under the microscope. It's a hard message to prepare. How easy it is to say the wrong word, to not use gentle speech. How easy it is to fight the wrong fights in the wrong way. Eden Baptist Church, your leaders need your prayers. Pray for us that we'll be faithful to this calling to take hits and respond in grace. Now, anybody that doesn't know our church might say, what on earth is he talking about? Nothing. It's all preemptive strikes. But it's just saying this is the life of the church. These things happen. These trials are faced. False doctrine is real. And people get their lives out of line with the true doctrine and need to be confronted. We need to know what is expected of our leaders and we need to pray diligently for them because it is the case that behind the scenes, the leaders of our church, by those outside the church, by those who have left the church, sometimes by those in the church who are wandering away from God, can deliver some pretty severe cuts. That's the calling. That's to be expected. But we need the prayers of the church to remain faithful through those challenges. 
elders, deacons, teachers, all of us, let us center then, secondly, our focus on the Gospel, on true doctrine, avoiding meaningless, fruitless controversies. That has been the pattern of this church for many years now, and we must labor together to keep it that way. There's a bent in probably all of us to find a hobby horse a particular topic, a particular agenda, and to run with that agenda and to really get everybody stirred up about it. It's not hard to find the topic. We could pick it, and I could list ten, and we'd all understand and probably offend people unnecessarily. I don't know. We've all got our hobbies. We've got these things we really want to run about. Don't get talking to me about lawsuits in our culture, or or you may never be able to turn me off. But we've all got these things. This family is not the place for those kind of isolated, quarreling debates. This family is about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. May that always be our focus, that we would focus on the true doctrine which conforms us into the likeness of Christ. Now, from Genesis 3 all the way through the book of Revelation, we see Satan's attack on God's Word to the false teachers depicted in the book of Revelation, to Satan who comes to Eve and says, God hasn't said that. God's lying to you. God has not preserved His truth from attack. The firm foundation will never cave in, but He's not preserved it from attack. So, we suffer as Christians persecution from the world. We as a body do. But also the attack on true doctrine from those who are influenced by the world to twist the true doctrine to fit their agenda. May God teach us when to fight and how to fight. And on that point, the ultimate example of picking the right fight in the right way was not demonstrated back at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia in 1775. We leave that with Providence. It was a fight for another day. We fight England in soccer. Football. That's it. But there is one. There is one who picked the right fight. Our Savior died to defeat Satan. He gave His life in the battle. That was a fight worth fighting. And He fought it in the right way. As Peter tells us, when He was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He got hit really hard. And He responded in grace. He fought the right fight in the right way. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. That was the fight that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. He looked at the lost and Jesus fought for you. He picked the fight the ultimate fight with Satan and with death and with the sin that destroys us. He took our sin to the cross. He paid the penalty there. And He calls us to respond in repentance and faith 
to say that I have broken the law of God again and again and again. But Jesus' wounds have paid the price for my sin. And now through His work, I can be reconciled to God. Jesus is our model on what fight to pick, on the kind of person that we should be in the fight, fighting that fight the right way. He continues to fight that fight. It's settled. The foundation is firm. But He continues to fight against sin. And He calls us as His people to join Him and to be faithful in that endeavor. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how far short we fall of Your glory and Your calling. I pray for this church that these things might be taken to heart. That we might be bold and courageous and faithful enough to fight for the truth. I pray that You'll give us gentleness and grace and patience and a willingness to be wounded in order to call some out of the snare of Satan. We praise You for this firm foundation that You have supplied. And in behalf of any who are separated from Christ, crack through the cold and hard heart and bring them to know that Jesus has paid the penalty of their sins and that by His grace and calling they can walk out of this place today free from sin. Not sinless, but forgiven. I pray that we'll all rejoice in that fact as we rejoice together in the firm foundation that has been laid by the death and resurrection of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.